Today, Kevin and I, we're going to share with you guys two awesome people from church history that have really shaped, I think, how Kevin and I view our faith and view our ministry. And the guy that I'm going to share with you is Martin Luther. And maybe you didn't do well in history class, and you're like, no, history. (sighs) But I'm hoping that tonight will actually be a step in reinvigorating your faith. Um, And maybe, though, you're asking, like, why do we have to worry about history? Why do we care about church history? Why don't we just read the Bible? I mean, that's a good place to start. And I do agree with you. That is the best place to start. You need to start with the Bible. But let's see what the Bible actually says about that. The first thing is, uh, what's on your sheet is Hebrews 13, 7, which says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we look toward the people that came before us. This is specifically talking about people, you know, that are leading us. But we also look at other people who came before us. Um, Even more than that, Hebrews 11 is basically like a short little history lesson about heroes of the faith and what they did and how we should imitate them. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that certain things were put in the scriptures as an example to us. And so we need to learn from the history that is in the scripture. And if you think about it, a huge chunk of the Bible is just history. The four Gospels, Acts, Genesis, Exodus, parts of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and there's parts of the prophets that are also history. There is just a ton of history in the Bible. And God is always reminding the Israelites, hey, I am your God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember your history. And so I think it is incumbent upon us to also look at history, at the heroes of the faith who came before us. So uh, we can imitate their faith, but being on this side of history, it's easier for us to see their blind spots and to know where they went wrong and how we can avoid those mistakes. And here's a pro tip for you guys. This is free. It's always better to learn from somebody else's mistakes instead of your own, right? Look at what other people have done wrong and do, do not do that thing. Right? That's a pro tip. Okay. So hopefully that helps you understand why church history is important. So we're going to talk, I'm going to talk about Martin Luther's ministry and life tonight. And he was the spark that ignited what's called the Reformation today. Uh, Martin Luther was born on November 10th, 1983. Let me get that right. Third time's a charm. In Eisleben, Saxony, in the Holy Roman Empire, modern day Germany. Uh, His father, Hans, was a miner and worked multiple jobs to put Luther through law school because he started out kind of poor and Hans and Margareta Luther wanted their child to have better success financially than they had. Now, Luther's home life growing up was really up and down. Hans Luther was a very demanding, harsh man, even though he really did love Martin and his other kids. But Uh, This colored Martin's life. And as a kid, Martin was terrified of God, absolutely terrified of God. And I can't help but wonder if the attitude that he had of his earthly father affected how he felt about his heavenly father. I think sometimes that can even happen to us. We start to view God through the lens of our dad, but our father in heaven is actually a perfect dad. Something to keep in mind. And he said that um, how he viewed Christ was, was this. He said, I turned pale at the very name of Christ. I regarded Christ as nothing more than a strict and angry judge. 
When he was 14, he once saw this guy named Prince William of Anhalt walking through the streets begging. His face was emaciated and he looked like death from fasting. And he was shocked that this guy, a ruler, would do this in order to try to earn favor with God. And that's when he started to believe that the monastic lifestyle was the way to heaven, that you had to be a monk or maybe a priest or a bishop, something, some member of the clergy. You had to be that in order to get to heaven. So at his dad's command, after he graduates from college, he goes to law school in 1505. But his life is totally changed on the way back to school after summer break. I think it's pretty cool that he like had a summer break, like you guys, like he was a college student. So he was, he was 21 years old and he's going to law school after summer break and he gets trapped in this lightning storm, this horrible, fierce lightning storm. Like you think about the thing that happened at Challenge, right? But picture like lightning striking all around you, right? It's like that bad, okay? And he was certain that he was gonna die. He knew in his heart that he was going to die. So he called out to the only mediator between God and man that he knew at the time. He called out to St. Anne, the patron saint of minors, because that's who his family prayed to. And he said, if you let me live, I'll give my life to God and I'll become a monk. Just let me live. And so that's what he did. He lived and he dropped out of law school and became a monk immediately. And this did not please his dad who wanted him to go to law school. And because Luther's a boss, he didn't just join any monastery. He joined the Augustinian order, okay? Now, these guys were the toughest, roughest monks. They would go the extra mile. And then after that extra mile, they would go another extra mile and then another extra mile. They were the the most ascetic believers that you could find. They they would just... um, get rid of all earthly comforts, anything you could think of. So if it's like college football, this is like Alabama. That's what he's enrolling in. So his time in the monastery, though, was troubled and filled with anxiety. He was obsessed with his sin and how to have right standing before God. Um, Because in the medieval Roman Catholic system, it was about your individual sins. They would stack up, kind of like um, straw on a camel's back. Your individual sins would stack up. And you had to occasionally unload that camel so that you didn't break the camel's back by doing the sacraments, uh, going to confession, doing penance, um, partaking in the Lord's Supper. All these things put you back in a right state with God. But even if you are in a state of grace before God, you can still add to your time in purgatory by committing certain sins. So there's just no real way to know that you're in right standing before God for sure. And Martin was obsessed with confessing his sins, obsessed, where his fellow monks would confess to their priest for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe half an hour. Martin Luther would do it for an hour, for two hours. One time he confessed for six hours straight to get all of his sins taken care of, every little thing that he could remember. Six hours in the confessional. And he drove his confessor absolutely mad. And his confessor said, dude, why don't you confess something interesting? because he was confessing every little thing he could think of, every thought or every action that he thought didn't please God. And so after he would do this, Martin would feel pretty good for a while. You know, he'd have a good attitude, my slate's clean, but then he would remember something that he didn't confess. And then he would fall right back into misery again and have to wait until his next confession to get it off his chest. 
So he had a very deep-seated fear of God, obviously, during his time in the monastery. And he conducted his first mass in, 19, in 1507. I keep saying, what is going on with me? 1507, he conducted his first mass. And uh, he was an ordained priest, so this was a big deal. His dad came in town for it to see him perform the mass. And the Eucharist is the center of the mass, turning the body or the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus. It's supposed to be literally the body and blood of Jesus. So um, when he got to these words, and these words were what a priest would say every time during Mass, and they would, it would transubstantiate the bread and wine. Uh, he said, we offer unto you the true, the eternal God. Luther says, at these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, how shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am but dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the one living, eternal, and true God. So he struggled to get through his first mass. He could barely contain himself. And so here we see something that I think a lot of modern Christians may have lost. Uh, it's a sense of awe and fear of the one who holds our lives in his hands. And I'm not immune to this either. We think of God as our friend, and he is. We think of God as our loving father, and he is. But he is also the creator and judge of the universe who pours out wrath on the ungodly. And so we need to have a full-orbed view of who God is. Now, obviously, Luther went way too far the opposite direction, right? He, the pendulum swung completely to the other side in Luther's mind. And that's understandable for someone who doesn't know the true gospel. Because the natural bent of the human heart is to try to earn salvation and to feel depressed or even hatred toward God when we can't do it, when we can't live up to what seems like an impossibly high standard. And what kind of God would do that? And Luther says, I was a good monk and followed the rules of the order so strictly that I can say if ever a monk got to heaven by his good works, it was I. And later he wrote, I was myself more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God, I hated him. So these things characterize Martin's time in the monastery. He had no peace, just fear, anxiety, and hatred for God. But during his time there, he found a mentor in an older monk named Johann von Staupitz. That's fun to say, Staupitz. In the midst of Luther's anxiety, Staupitz provided a rock that he could stand on. And he would try to remind Luther, okay, stop focusing on your sins. Stop focusing on these things. Focus on the good. Focus on Christ. Look at what he has done. And because of the anguish that he could see Luther going through, he actually secured for him a teaching position at the University of Wittenberg. And he's like, I'm sending you away to the University of Wittenberg. And he's like, Luther is going, what? You're sending me away? How am I? I'm struggling with my faith, and you're going to send me away. And Stoppitz is like, yeah, because you're going to get to read the Bible. Because to this point, Martin had never read the Bible. Okay? He's in his mid to late 20s, and he's never read the Bible. In Christian Europe, right? That's jacked up. So 
at Wittenberg, Martin got to read the New Testament. And he starts teaching through Galatians, through Romans, through Psalms, some other books of the Bible. And as he's studying, he's starting to find the gospel. He's starting to find what Jesus really did and how to really be saved. And these books are the exact books that you don't want your priests to read if you want to keep them tied to the sacramental system that's dependent on on these works to do. But as he started to read and teach, Luther realized something. He realized that the problem wasn't sins, individual sins that you count up. The problem was sin in general, human sin in general. People are sinful by nature, and mankind has a sin problem that can only be dealt with by God fixing it himself. And so he describes this shift in his mindset as he's reading Romans 1. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, but always came to a standstill at that expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the guilty. Now, though I had been an exemplary monk, I felt myself to be a sinner before God and was so troubled in conscience that I had no confidence that I could by any merit of my own ever assuage him. At last, I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I understood the justice of God is that righteousness by which God, quite freely and in sheer mercy, justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt as if I had been reborn and had gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God... I now began to regard it as an inexpressibly sweet and comforting word, so that this expression of Paul's became to me, in very truth, a gate to heaven. What a different outlook that is, right? To go from anxiety and fear to being reborn. See, when you, when you don't recognize God as Savior, you view God as harsh, and you view God's law as barriers that just keep you from him, and they make you resentful. But once you recognize the gospel, God's laws become engines that propel you toward Christ-likeness as you obey them, as you get sanctified, as you grow. And this is an earth-shattering revelation for Martin. And it sets the stage for what happens next and ultimately for the rest of his life. And so the gospel is the difference between Martin living in fear and changing the world. The gospel is the difference between Martin living in fear and changing the world. So, in 1517, uh, the Pope, Leo X, he's trying to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So what he does is he he permits the selling of indulgences in certain lands to pay for this. So what's an indulgence? Well, according to Roman Catholic theology, in heaven there is a treasury filled with merit. The merit of Jesus Christ is there, and it's also filled with the extra merit of, of Mary and the saints because they were so good that they had extra merit that they were able to give away. And so what an indulgence was was a dispensation of some of this merit to people who needed it. And it would remove your time in purgatory. So you could buy this, this indulgence, and remove your time in purgatory. So people were more or less paying money for the forgiveness of their sins. Um, based on the excess merit of the saints in Christ. And they would also not only buy them for themselves, but they would pay extra money for their loved ones, especially people who had already died, to you know, 
let grandpa out of purgatory. Um, one of the things that John Tetzel, the seller of indulgences, would say is, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That was an actual line that he used. And it's like a fun little jingle. I can see it in a commercial right now. But this ticks Martin right off. Okay, You can't buy God's grace. So Luther comes up with 95 theses, 95 points of debate about the selling of indulgences and also the scare tactics that were being used to sell them. And he nails them to the church door at Wittenberg. And this isn't an act of protest yet. This is not an act of protest. He's putting forward 95 points of debate, saying, hey, what do you think about these? Let's talk through these. Something seems a little jacked up here. Paraphrase. So, um, one of these theses stated that Christians are to be taught that the entirety of, Christian, of the Christian life is about repentance, not just having your sins removed by buying indulgences. And another asks, if the, Pope, if the Pope holds the keys to the treasury of merit and heaven, why doesn't he simply empty purgatory out of the goodness of his heart? Why does he make you pay for it? So somebody, we don't know who, took the theses down, had them reprinted with the printing press, which was just becoming a, a big, important technology around that time. And Pope Leo was not pleased. So in 1520, Pope Leo issued a uh, papal bull, which is not a bovine, but is a, an official pronouncement. He issued a papal bull called Exerge Domine that basically denounced Luther and his attack on the indulgences. And when it reached Luther, Luther publicly burned it. And so now there is no going back. He's burning his bridges. Um, and that split was unhealable. And then Luther was summoned by Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, to come to the city of Worms for a diet. And that was a, an official meeting. And this one was called the Diet of Worms, or the Diet of Worms. You know, are you keto, or are you paleo, or... I'm trying the Diet of Worms, and uh, it's not going well. People are calling me a heretic. But uh, so, yeah, they were going to meet in the city of Worms, Germany. And Prince Frederick of Saxony, uh, who was actually the, the ruler of Saxony when Luther was there, he secured a passage of safe conduct for Luther, meaning, okay, you can grill him in, in Worms, right? You can, you know, kind of have at him, talk to him, whatever, but you can't arrest him, you can't burn him, don't touch my monk, basically, is what he was saying. And this was um, an, uh, an awesome providential thing of God for Luther. The emperor agreed to it, and um, Prince Frederick became Luther's lifelong spiritual and political ally. And if it weren't for him, Luther probably would have been quickly killed for heresy, and the Reformation probably doesn't get off the ground. But in God's sovereignty, circumstances allowed Martin to live, and at the Diet of Worms, he was commanded to recant everything that he had written. And Luther simply couldn't do it. And this is where he gives his famous speech, where he says, unless I'm convinced by scripture and by plain reason, I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. So the Diet does condemn him and condemns his works. Um, but Luther's received the safe conduct, right? So he leaves... And even though he's not supposed to be um, arrested or captured, Frederick doesn't take any chances. And he actually kidnaps Luther on the way back to Wittenberg. And he locks Luther up 
at the Wartburg Castle. It seems like everything in Germany was named with a W at the beginning at this time. Um, that's what I've learned from my study of church history. But we see at the end of Martin's speech, um, we see this conclusion that Luther had already come to about Scripture, and it's a really important conclusion and shapes the rest of church history. Uh, and that is sola scriptura. The Bible alone is the highest authority. The Bible alone is the highest authority. Sola Scriptura is Latin uh, for Scripture alone. And Jose told me that it's identical in Spanish too. So that's neat. Um, so when you start to stray from the Bible and you, know, you start to trust in popes or your own experience or church councils or your favorite celebrity pastor, and more than you trust in the Bible, that's when you get into serious trouble. And that's what was wrong with the church in Martin Luther's time. That's what had happened to the church. And there in the Wartburg Castle, Luther begins the translation of the New Testament from Greek into German. And this is a monumental thing, a vernacular translation into a common language of the Holy Scriptures. Because at this time, normal people couldn't read it because it had to be in Latin. The Scriptures had to be in Latin. And this also created a further break with the Roman Catholic Church because the Bible was illegal to read in your own language at that time. It was illegal to read the Bible in the language that you were most familiar with. And if you did have, if you were caught with the Bible in your own language, you were burned at the stake. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the church saying, no, you can't read your Bible? That's jacked up. All right. So, um... I think we don't realize how good we have it, right? Every one of us in here, we all have access to over 100 Bible translations in our pocket, like right now, right? You can read, you can read it in, in like Hausa, you can read it in Chinese, you can read it in English, you can read it in Hawaiian pidgin. But in any case, we're really tempted to take the Bible for granted, aren't we? And so... When you're tempted to do that, think about the people who came before. Think about the people who didn't get to read God's word in their own language that wanted to. Cherish the Bible. Cherish your Bible. You know, this is something that all of you guys know intellectually that I know, and I forget it all the time. And so I think it just bears repeating that we just need to cherish the Bible. So Luther's translation was, would end up becoming a cornerstone for the German language and forming a lot of what the German language would look like after that point. And he would continue to revise the New Testament throughout his life because he always wanted the clearest, most logical meaning of the words so that the common man and woman could understand it the most clearly. So around 1520, the year before the Diet of Worms, uh, and lasting for several years, Luther starts writing. And he just starts to put out a bunch of literature. And he writes with confidence in a way that the people can understand. He writes in German. And his words spread throughout Europe. And throughout the universities of Europe. One thing that's cool to think about is that, at least in Germany, the Reformation was, in large part, a university movement. It was a university movement. Because it started with a university professor, Martin Luther. And it spread among his students and the faculty there. And they would have debates with other universities in the area, and it was spread among those students and faculty, and it, it caught fire in all these different universities across Europe. And certain universities started becoming Protestant universities. And I think today, 
the university still has a similar sort of power. And if you change the university, you change the world. I still think that that's true today, that if you change the university, you change the world. And we have a great opportunity at Chico State, at SDSU, to really impact the next generation. Because the next generation, all of you guys, you're going to be leaders. In one way or another, you're going to be leaders. And we want you guys to be able to influence people for Christ. And I know, I know that you guys want that too. And so this is just one of the cool things that, that I think crosses over really well from Luther's life, from that time period to our time period. And so one important person in Luther's life was a guy named Philip Melanchthon. He also had the pointiest chin in Europe. Yeah. Um, whereas Luther was the emotional, um, over-the-top, kind of angry, fiery theologian, Melanchthon was much more balanced and level-headed, and he really helped Luther develop a lot of his theology. Uh, and it continued after Luther died. Melanchthon kept developing Lutheran theology, making it more clear. And he was the main uh, person behind the Augsburg Confession of 1530, which uh, was presented to the Emperor Charles V. And it gave the Lutherans something more firm to stand on, to say, this is what we really believe. And so don't underestimate the value of having like a counterbalance in your life, okay? A close friend you can rely on that can see your blind spots. He can see where Luther was angry and emotional, so in, in 1523, Luther's writings made their way into a cloister, a place where nuns live, in a town called Nimch. And I just want to like focus on this word for a second. Look at, look at this consonant cluster. That's seven straight consonants. That's, that's or <laughs> six. Six straight consonants. This is an eight-letter word with seven consonants in it. And anyway, I just thought that was, that was weird and wanted to point that out to you guys. Um, that has nothing to do with the rest of the talk. But um, in any case, these nuns, they read Luther's works, and they got the bright idea, we want to escape. We don't want to be nuns anymore. And the thing is, escaping was an accurate term. You had to escape from a cloister. Um, and so what they did is they hid in fish barrels, and somebody loaded these fish barrels up onto a cart and took them out of the cloister and they went for about two days and, until they got to Wittenberg. And so um, they, they found Luther and, and said, hey, we've got some, some runaway, runaway nuns uh, that want to come hang out with you guys. And so you can just imagine like Luther opening these fish barrels. Oh, gosh. Whew. So it smelled like, they smelled like salted fish and they hadn't had any food or water for a couple days and no bathroom for a couple days. Okay, um, but because Luther, Luther had already written about the unbiblical basis for clerical celibacy, the fact that if you're clergy, you're not allowed to marry or anything like that, he had written about how that was wrong. And so uh, these nuns decided to get married and Luther kind of played the part of matchmaker and he kind of helped them get married. He married them off to, to these other guys that were looking for wives, um, and he wasn't really willing to get married, though, at first, because he was afraid that he was going to get arrested as a heretic and burned, and that this might happen at any moment. So he was like, I better, I better not, like, get a wife. But um, at the prodding of other people, a lot of his close friends, and the fact that this one kind of more um, self-confident uh, nun uh, sort of 
declared her love for him already. She was like, I like you. I think we should get married. Um, because of that, he basically decided, um, you know, yeah, let's do that. And so her name was Katerina von Bora. And so if you're looking for baby names, yeah. So I'm going to camp out here on Luther's marriage for a while because all the other stuff about Luther's life, you can learn more easily. So many books have been written about Martin Luther. But uh, I think one overlooked aspect of his life is his marriage and his family life. So we're going to talk about that for quite a bit. Um, now, Luther's motivation for marriage was not romantic love, at least at first. He did not love Katharina von Bora romantically. He got married because he said it would, quote, please my father, rile the Pope, cause the angels to laugh and the devils to weep. Which is as good of a reason as any, you know. Um, and he wrote to his friend Spalatin. He said, you must come to my wedding. I've made the angels laugh and the devils weep. And later he wrote, at that time I was not in love with my Katie at all, but God wanted me to take pity on the forsaken one. So that sounds really harsh. But if you think about it, Katerina von Bora was 25 or 26 at the time, which in the 1500s, that's old, all right? I mean, she should have been married like six, seven years ago at this point. Um, and we see something of Luther's wit here. He was, he was a sarcastic guy, joking a lot in his writing, even, at least when he wasn't getting angry. Um, and their marriage was a huge scandal. It did rile the Pope. Um, and it, it set the tone for Protestant clergy being encouraged to marry. And this was, this was the most scandalous thing that you could think of at the time. This was a, a former monk marrying a runaway nun. I mean, in, in the 1500s, there's like nothing more scandalous than that. And as time went by, Martin really did develop a really deep and profound love for Katie. And their marriage was a happy one. It was a, a mutually beneficial one. I think it was really a picture of what a good Christian marriage can look like. Um, and Martin called her his, quote, dear rib. You know, Adam and Eve, the rib. Um, and he called her a uh, pious and faithful wife. Um, she was, in his words, gentle, obedient, and kind in all things far beyond my hopes. I would not exchange my poverty with her for all the riches of Croesus without her. And he said, I would not part from my Katie, no, not to gain all France and Venice. And to her specifically, he wrote, Katie, you have a pious husband who loves you. You are a very empress. Thanks be to God. And Galatians was Martin's favorite book, and he called it My Katerina von Bora. So he did develop this profound sense of love for her that he didn't have at first. And their marriage was such an example that it helped pave the way for romantic love and marriage in the Western world. That was not the idea that people would have before. You got married to secure property or to continue your family line. But this sort of kick-started, popularized the idea of romance and marriage. Crazy, right? And he viewed um, Katie's work as equal to his own which was also revolutionary at that time. He had already written that other, there were other jobs outside of being a monk or a priest or a bishop that were just as holy as doing ministry because all work is, can be work for God. He even said that milkmaids can milk cows to the glory of God. And so he and Katie were both serving God, but they were, they were serving in different capacities. Luther was 
a preacher and a writer. He was a, a spiritual leader um, of a big chunk of Europe. Um, but Katie, she was a homemaker. She was kind of a stay-at-home mom for the most part. Uh, Katie would garden. She would raise the livestock and slaughter them, which is hardcore, as well as manage the household and care for their children. And Katie was really caring towards her family. And she was really creative and industrious in their home. Luther bought for them an estate in 1540. And three years later, she was still fixing it up. She was still working on it. She was still implementing new ideas around the house. Um, Because she's creative and she's industrious. And she gets things done. Um, Now, our modern world talks down about this kind of vocation for a woman. Um, But I tell you, raising kids is a great ministry that is undermined in our culture. Um, I mean, you're, you're raising the next generation, right? We all pray for an opportunity to, to make disciples, to raise them up, um, help them become believers and take them to maturity in Christ. And I mean, you, you can literally make disciples. Okay? You, you can literally make disciples and it's, raising your kids is a really valuable ministry, Okay? And it's something that, that both parents should be involved in to some extent. Um, but Katie, Katie also had a mind of her own. She was very strong-willed, confident, and she knew her own worth as someone made in the image of God. Um, many non-Christians critique Christian marriage um, or the idea of complementarianism, the idea that, that men and women have different roles in the church and family. But Christian marriage doesn't mean that the man is a tyrant and that the woman is a doormat. Okay, that's not what Christian marriage means. If you get married, you're, you're called to complement one another, not be the same as one another. And I forgot to put a little heading. These next few points are all about marriage, about Luther's family life. So you can write right above that, like Luther's marriage or so, something um, to kind of bring these next few points together uh, under a heading. So yeah, complement one another. You're not supposed to be the same. As one another. And Katie was the perfect counterbalance to Luther because she was strong willed without becoming quarrelsome. And one great example of this is now Martin struggled with depression his whole life. He always struggled with depression. He would go into severe bouts of depression that he thought he would never come out of. And this next story, I can't remember where I heard it, but it's true to the best of my knowledge. Look it up if you want to, you can double check. But one time, when he was having one of his moments, one of his bouts of depression, Katie came down and sat down next to him, dressed in all black, and she had like this distraught look on her face. And Martin looks over at her, and she's not her normal self, and he's like, what's wrong with you? And she's like, God is dead. And he's like, woman, what are you talking about? God can't die. And she's like, well, he must be dead, because I can't think of any other reason why my husband would be so distraught over these circumstances that God would normally be in control of. And Luther, being the man that he was, he was like, you know, you're right. And it kind of snapped him out of it. And Katie knew how to push his buttons in just the right way. She knew that the effect that that would have on him. And it's that kind of thing that, that made Katie awesome. And, you know, Martin took it all in stride. He would joke about these kinds of things in his letters to people. In one letter, he says, Many greetings from my Katie, the head of the house. <laughs> Greet your wife, who may be your Lord also. <laughs> yeah. And K- 
Katie was also interested in, in the more theological uh, things that were going on around, the more political things. Um, and so in 1529, for example, Luther went to a meeting in the city of Marburg called the Marburg Colloquy, where he met up with another reformer from Switzerland named Ulrich Zwingli. And they were going to try to come together to see what they could agree on, to see if they could stand together as a united Protestant front. And so they, they talked things out, and their main disagreement was on the issue of the Lord's Supper and what exactly was going on there. And so Martin wrote home and told Katie all about it. And she understood what was going on. And she knew her stuff. And she, she was also totally on board with Martin's mission to do these things. And that's, that's another really important thing, is back your spouse. Katie backed her spouse. Martin backed his spouse. They had each other's backs. And this is really important, because you need to be united. Because when you're married, you're one flesh. And so support what God has called your spouse to do. And this is, here's another little bonus. I just read about another missionary named William Carey, whose spouse had a much harder time backing him, and it did not end well. She ended up going crazy and living her last 13 years in a padded cell. Um, and so that's sort of the opposite side of the coin, right? So that's sort of a sad story, um, but let's stick with Martin and Katie because that's a good story. So the Luthers, they would also frequently open their home to students, to travelers, to family friends that would come through town. Sometimes up to 40 people would be staying at their house. They had a big house, don't worry. Um, they had a heart for hospitality. And uh, Luther would often sit around the dinner table with a bunch of his students, and they would just talk theology. And the students would take notes. And they would talk ministry. And we have all these notes published in a volume called Table Talk. You can go get that. You can go get that right now. Um, and uh, it also, having all these people over, also enabled his children to see what true hospitality looked like. And it enabled his students to see what a solid family life looked like. And so this hospitality served a lot of purposes. So uh, one good recommendation is to open your home. Let people see your life. Open your home. Um, because people can follow your example as long as you're following the example of Christ. So Luther would continue to travel, to teach and preach throughout his life. And throughout his life, he would continue to have these bouts of depression and also other serious physical health problems. Uh, things like kidney stones, chronic dizziness, uh, insomnia, bad digestion, a chronically runny nose, um, either a cold or sinusitis or something like that. Um, his poor health was definitely due, at least in part, to his time in the monastery. Because when Paul says, beat your body and make it a slave, he took that literally. And he messed up his digestion in the monastery. He even wrote about that. Um, and he, he knew it. This is also a time when infant mortality was really high. And in 1528, the Luthers had an eight-month-old daughter named Elizabeth, that died. And it took them years to recover. In 1542, Martin and Katie's second daughter, Magdalena, died at the age of 13. And in spite of the fact that she and her parents knew that she was saved, knew that she was going to be with Christ, it was still incredibly painful. And Martin would never fully recover. He never recovered from the death of his second daughter emotionally. But he continued to work. He continued 
to work. And that's one theme that we see with these reformers, Martin Luther, Zwingli, John Calvin, uh, John Knox. All these guys dealt with some really serious issues, health issues, persecution issues, all sorts of things. And they had discipline that we knew nothing about, that they were able to keep doing ministry and, and keep working for the Lord. And in this way, they, they modeled Christ. There's one point when Jesus is on the cross and he's in the middle of taking the wrath of God upon himself for the sin of the world. And he looks down at John and his mother and he says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And right there in that culture, you know, children took care of their parents in their parents' old age. And so what he's doing while he's having the wrath of God poured out on him is he's making provision for his mother. He's thinking about his mom when he's on the cross. And sometimes the enemy is going to put these things in your way and, and things are going to really hurt. But are you going to persevere? Are you going to minister through the pain? Are you going to minister through the pain? And I know that at Challenge in San Diego, we've had a lot of times where things start to happen right around the beginning of the fall or the beginning of the spring. Cars break down. People get really sick. These are common things. It's just every time the semester rolls around, it's just like, okay, what is it going to be this time and who's it going to happen to? Right? And ours, our problems are little compared with this, with what Martin Luther had to go through. But even these little things can throw us off and they can make us feel like, you know, we, we deserve comfort. We deserve something easy. You know, last semester was, was pretty easy and productive, but this semester things seem really hard and this just isn't fair and it's not what I want. And are we going to persevere through that? Are we going to continue to minister even when it's hard? James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So in 1546, Martin Luther went to his hometown of Eisleben to uh, settle a dispute between a couple nobles there. He also took the opportunity to preach while he was there. And in the middle of the sermon, he said, I need to, to stop, we'll finish tomorrow. But he never got that chance. He died in that, his same town where he was born when he was 62 years old. And when Melanchthon heard of Luther's death, he broke down in tears and he said, we resemble orphans bereft of an excellent and faithful father. And so Martin Luther's legacy lasts to this day. Churches like Chico Community Church are related in some way to the Reformation that Luther started. And Luther was a man with many flaws that we shouldn't sweep under the rug, but there is so much in his life that we can really learn from. And so... Take the good things from these guys in history, like Martin Luther, and leave out the bad. And I think we all have a lot of things to learn from this great hero of the faith. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a few minutes to uh, do our discussion questions before Kevin comes up and speaks. God, I thank you for um, men like Martin Luther, who poured themselves out for you, who spent their lives uh, to serve you. Um, I thank you for the hindsight that we have, looking back at him so we can see what he did right and what he did wrong. And um, I pray that you would help us apply these things from his life because even though the times are different, so many of these principles stay the same and the Bible stays the same. Amen.